From the official radio network of the PRSA, WebmasterRadio.fm presents exclusive coverage of the annual Public Relations Society of America's International Conference. Welcome to the PRSA 2009 International Conference in San Diego. Influential, outspoken, and fearless, Ariana Huffington is founder and driving force behind the Huffington Post, one of the most successful and powerful news and opinion sites. She is the author of 12 books and co-host of Left, Right, and Center, Public Radio's popular political roundtable. Her unbridled ambition, political views, and honesty have combined to make her a major player in the world of new media. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ariana Huffington. Thank you so much for the introduction. I'm glad that you read my itinerary because it explains the sweater set, the only thing that doesn't wrinkle. (laughs) The women here would understand, right? For those of you who have not heard me before, this accent is for real. Um, I say that because recently I was giving a speech and I joked that I was actually born in Fresno, California and had... um, cultivated this accent to give myself an air of being an ethnic minority. And I got 37 letters or emails from people asking me, how exactly did you go about changing your accent? (laughs) And two of them were from Fresno. (laughs) So for those of you, either professionals or students in the PR profession, you realize there is a level of gullibility in the public which you have to be careful how you exploit, but it's definitely there. This is such an exciting time to be speaking to you because it is a very exciting time for news consumers. There are pitfalls, and we're going to talk about that, but there is no question that this is an amazing turning point. And I want to divide what I want to say into three parts. The first has to do with how much has changed, and for those of you who've been in the profession for a long time, how suddenly you have to learn all these new techniques and absorb all these new tools. For those of you who are students, in a way it must be kind of easier because you're already digital natives and you're used to communicating in that brave new world. But for those of you who consider the press release the main tool of communicating, it must be hard. Because the press release is becoming more and more obsolete. We still all do it. We do it at the Huffington Post when we hire a new president or when we have a new announcement to make. But we increasingly know that it's more effective to give the information to somebody with a site or a blog post or a way that is going to immediately get out into the world you want to communicate with. And what is different now is that the people you are communicating to absorb news differently. Um, We had a a panel about all these changes that we organized um, during the last convention in Denver, the Democratic Convention, and Will I.M. was on the panel. And he used a metaphor, which I think sums up the change. He says, you consume old media sitting on the couch, and you consume new media galloping on the horse you are engaged with the information. And so as a result, since one of the things that you want people to do is to be engaged with the information you are giving them, the more of the social tools that we use, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or blogging, the more important and powerful the interaction becomes. At the Huffington Post, from the day we launched, community was always a key part of who we were. It was 24-7. Seven News, a collective blog that now has over 3,000 people with a password, and a community. Last month alone, we had 2 million uh, comments on the site. And in order to deal with the fact that if you don't moderate them, you're going to get trolls, you're going to get at hominem attacks, we have 24-7 human pre-moderation. So that's something we all need to deal with. Because increasingly, as you are finding out, the negative side of the web is the way it can be used for disinformation, for misinformation. 
The good news, though, is that things can be course-corrected almost as fast as they're disseminated. And we saw that during the 08 campaign. We saw how the Obama campaign very powerfully used the Internet, not just to put out their own messages, but to also correct things that were being put out there. And it's not just for sound bites. It's also for lengthy pieces. For example, Barack Obama's speech on race was seen by over 6 million people in its entirety on YouTube. And if you ask people how many, if I ask here, how many of you saw um, Tina Fey's impersonation of Sarah Palin? <laughs> how many of you saw it on Saturday Night Live? A, a tiny handful of people saw them on Saturday Night Live. And if, if I ask this question in a college where people are a tiny bit younger than you and me, almost nobody saw it on Saturday Night Live. So it's, again, the viral communication that is affecting everything we communicate. The second point is that while the mainstream media suffer from ADD, attention deficit disorder, we, in the online media, suffer from OCD, Obsessive Compulsion Disorder, which means that we don't just write about a story. If it matters, we stay with the story and stay with the story until there is impact, which is really something that the PR profession, I think, increasingly has to adopt because it's not enough anymore to just put out something and just assume that it's going to be absorbed. There have to be multiple, multiple ways of staying on the story and evolving and expanding the story, both directly and by bringing in the community. For example, we saw how Josh Marshall, by using these techniques and by using citizen journalists and by using the wisdom of the crowd, managed to break the attorney general story in a way that ended up with a resignation of the Attorney General. And we see how often major blockbuster stories break on the front pages of the New York Times and nothing happens. Because we are all used now to consuming information differently, much more in bits and pieces and much more building the story as we go along. At the Huffington Post during the election, we, we launched a citizen journalism project off the bus that ended up having 13,000 journalists all around the country reporting on different aspects of the campaign and actually breaking news, as Mehil Fowler did when she broke the story about Barack Obama's comments at a fundraiser about uh, bitter people clinging to their guns and violence that derailed his campaign for a little while. And that was from a citizen journalist. Right now, we have another project that we are calling Eyes and Ears, and we are asking people to bear witness to the economic crisis, to send us stories about people losing their homes and losing their jobs, and, and how is it affecting their communities, to put flesh and blood on the economic numbers. Because it's one thing to say unemployment is 10.2%, and it's another thing to tell the stories of the people who are being affected by the growing unemployment and the growing foreclosures. So that takes me to my third point, which is the need for drama. We, we are all so used to massive streams of information that for something to stand out, there needs to be drama. The balloon boy. <laughs> that was drama. Now, I personally think that it was way over the top that we spent an enormous amount of time following a story that very quickly became a non-story. Because even after we found the balloon boy, we didn't even rename him the attic boy, which we should have done because he was never in the balloon. <laughs> but we continued obsessing over the story, wall-to-wall -wall coverage. And I remember, actually, that I was supposed to be on the Ed Schultz show to talk about Afghanistan because I had just written um, a blog post about Joe Biden. And again, this is another use of drama. I wanted to write a blog post that would attempt to persuade 
not to escalate in Afghanistan. So, thank you. There's somebody here who agrees with me. Um, so I decided in order to get people to focus on it, to present it in the frame of Joe Biden, who is the main person in the administration advising against escalation. So I said the title was Joe Biden should resign on the grounds that if he's not listened to and if the president escalates, this is the time to resign rather than years later write a book in which he tells us that he was really against it and he would go home and agonize over the people dying in Afghanistan and isn't he a good guy and this is the mea culpa and can you please buy my book? Because I think we've had enough of that. We've had Colin Powell and, and Scott McConnell, sorry, Mac McClellan, thank you. And one person after another just writing these books and telling us what they were really thinking at the time. I think resignation and whistleblowing, I'm so glad we're going to be talking with Wendell Potter in a minute, are very noble pursuits. But the point I'm making here, since I'm talking to PR professionals and students, is that if I had express the exact identical things without the framing of Joe Biden resigning, my column would have gotten one thousandth of the attention, if that. Because I framed it in this dramatic way, which I also believe in. I wasn't saying anything I didn't believe in. I just picked a more dramatic frame. It suddenly got the kind of attention that it wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So remember that. Framing it in a dramatic way is key. So, anyway, there I was to discuss it on Ed Schultz. And his first question to me is, so what do you think of the balloon boy? <laughs> and I say, Ed, you know what? I don't really understand why we're still talking about the balloon boy. We found him. He's safe. He was never not safe. Can we move on to something of minor importance like Afghanistan? And remember, there is no reason why you can't do that on national television. There is no reason why you can't speak your mind on national television. There is no reason why you have to wait and tell Ed in an email afterwards. And the other point that I was thinking that is so important is how then can we use the reality that people respond to drama to actually put the spotlight on issues that need to be addressed and get our attention. Like, for example, there are a million and a half homeless children in this country. A million and a half. What if we constructed a giant balloon and put them all in? <laughs> Actually, we don't even have to put them in the balloon. We can just pretend to be putting them in the balloon. <laughs> and then we would get a tiny handful of the attention that otherwise they're not getting. There's, a, there's such a moving story in the New York Times today about um, a little girl, a 10-year-old girl living in New York, first in a homeless shelter, then in a one-room apartment with her mother and her autistic brother, and sleeping in the same bed with her mother and her autistic brother, who sleeps in a way that it made it very hard for her to sleep. And she was writing how she would go to bed and fall asleep during classes. And they raised money and they bought her a bed. And that one bed that she's photographed in, uh, on this bed made all the difference in her life. And you think, if we can put the spotlight on these stories, people will give, you know, because we are compassionate people. We just don't have enough ways of putting the spotlight on these stories. That's why at the Huffington Post, we launched a new site a new vertical, as we call them, called Impact, which is directly about giving back. So we tell these stories, and there are widgets attached to the stories where people can give directly to the families, the people, the nonprofits being profiled. The first family we profiled two weeks ago, the Stein family that had a healthcare crisis, the mother went blind, just a really tragic story. We raised $30,000 for them in three days. And the most moving thing was to read the comments 
from people who are giving. There was a woman saying, I just lost my home, but I'm sending $10. Or I have an autistic child and no health care, but I'm sending $5. And literally, we raise that money 5 and $10 at a time. And this is sort of an important thing to remember, that we all have that capacity for empathy. And in many of the causes that we are all going to be supporting, because I'm sure there are people here who are going to be doing different things, from corporate PR to cause-related PR to political PR, touching people's hearts is so much more important than touching people's minds. Because that's the most powerful way to get people to act, whatever that action that we want them to take is. And we're going to talk about the, the code of ethics and um, the need to be able to go home and go to bed without having to numb yourself to go to sleep. And how in the end, this connection between our personal lives and what we feel good about and our professional lives is key also if we're going to do our jobs well and if we're going to live lives that are fulfilling and meaningful. Because in the end, it's not really worth doing anything else. It doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't course correct, but that's the key, course correcting. So this is a really exciting time to be in this profession. It's a really exciting time to be in the PR profession. It's a really exciting time to be in the journalism profession because we are reinventing both these professions. What worked in the past doesn't work anymore. I wish that we had a Q&A time but I will do something else. I will give you my email address, and you can email me, or you can go on Facebook, or you can go on Twitter, because I'm on all these things. <laughs> and you can ask any questions you want, because it's hard for me to, have a, to, to talk to you without you talking back to me. That's very old-fashioned. Next time, you must change that. <laughs> because... <laughs> because it's all about interaction now. And it's all about listening, not just talking. And that is really the heart of what we did at the Huffington Post is from day one, we were listening. We didn't think that we had all the answers. We didn't think we had all the wisdom. And when you listen, it is amazing how much wisdom is out there. So creating the circumstances where you listen is just as key as anything else. So as we are launching into this journey of reinvention, it's really exciting to have spoken to you, and I really want to continue the conversation, including making the Huffington Post available for you to write about whatever it is that you are passionate about or interested in, because that's how we grew, and that's how we want to continue to be a platform that is available um, to everyone who has something to say. And the key is that we are no longer living in the either-or world. We are no longer living in a world which is based just on you're going to be on the Huffington Post or you're going to be on my site or you're going to be on MSNBC. The new economy is the linked economy. And people who get that really are the ones who are going to change our professions. That is not just about proprietary content anymore. In fact, ubiquity is really what matters. You know, promiscuity may not be good in relationships, but it's very good online. <laughs> and remember that when, we, when you are dealing with people, maybe people you work for, who still think that it's all about hoarding it, putting it behind walls. This is our content. That's not how people consume news anymore, and that's not, therefore, the best way to present the news. Thank you so much for listening. Let's continue the conversation with Wendell. Thank you, Ariana. This is getting fun, isn't it? Just wait for the next part of this. I'm now extremely pleased to introduce one additional speaker. It's a two for day. Healthcare advocate and ethics champion, Wendell Potter. I can't believe our incredible timing. Just a day after the House passes the healthcare bill, PRSA is presenting all of you two figures who have incredible passion and amazing insights into this critical issue. In just a few minutes, Wendell will be interviewed by Ariana on what truly is a historic time in our country but not what you think it is. We're not going to have a debate about the health care bill. What we're going to be looking at 
is some forward-looking insights into what this issue is and how many others are dealing with it today and how this issue is actually being affected by propaganda, deception, misinformation, and more, and how all of us must deal with it and manage it and come to grips with it. It's about ethics. Let me tell you a little bit about Wendell Potter. After a 20-year career as a corporate public relations executive, last year, Wendell Potter, APR, senior fellow on healthcare for the Center for Media and Democracy, left his job as head of communications at one of the nation's largest health insurers. He left what I assume to be a very cushy position to help socially responsible organizations achieve their goals. He speaks out on the need for fundamental overhaul of the American healthcare system. What's more, he is focusing a lot of his attention on the decline of the news media as watchdogs. This, Wendell believes, has contributed to the growing and increasing unchecked influence, sounds familiar, of corporate public relations and, in his view, the demise of American and democracy in society. Previously, Wendell held a lot of different positions. He was head of corporate communications at Cigna, communications executive at Humana, press secretary to a Democratic nominee for the governor of Texas, or ten, I'm sorry, Tennessee, sorry, Texas, as a lobbyist in Washington for the organizers of the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee. Please, everyone, welcome Wendell Potter. That is a little joke, you know. We, got, we were backstage um, talking, and um, a very nice gentleman went and got us some Starbucks just as I was about to come on. So Wendell said, don't worry, I'll bring it to you when we have our interview. <laughs> so there is one more reason to love Wendell Potter. <laughs> and I had plenty already. In fact, I'm, I'm just really honored and excited to be talking with you, Wendell, because what you've done is so important, not just for the healthcare industry, but for the country. Because increasingly, as I was saying earlier about resignation, we all need to recognize that we have the power to influence the course of events if we act on it. So I'd love to take you back to what was your decision-making process. First about leaving your job, and then a year after that about speaking out. Yeah, I appreciate that because they were really two different things. And I decided to leave my job, which was probably the second most difficult thing I've ever done, because I just didn't What was the first? Uh, speaking out oh. against the industry. I thought there was some other dark secret. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, getting to the point of being able to walk away from a job, that did pay me quite well, and that was very professionally rewarding. It was very difficult, but I had gotten to the point that... Uh, I really had a hard time looking myself in the mirror, and often I would say, how was it that you got here, and why are you doing what you're doing? Um, and there were a series of events. One, I think it, my journey actually began 40 years ago to, to, to a certain extent when I uh, enrolled as a student at the University of Tennessee, and one of my uh, student advisors, I uh, was very fortunate to have this wonderful woman who um, the student chapter of PRSSA is named after Samuel N. Pewitt, uh, who was my first real mentor. And she was the embodiment of ethics and uh, integrity. And over the years, I would stay in touch with, with Samuel Ann. She was almost my, my touch point uh, professionally. And she died, uh, unfortunately, in a, in, a, in a tragic accident in 2000. And I always missed her. I missed the chances of being able to call her and just uh, touch base with her. Uh, I say that because I think I lost my moral compass somewhere along the way. Um, I'm talking about myself professionally or personally. I didn't think that I ultimately was doing what I was supposed to be doing and I would sometimes say, what would Sammy Lynn say? What would mm -hmm. she think about what I was doing for a living? And uh, I often was ashamed, quite frankly, of what I was doing. But it took me a long time to make the final decision to leave. I was involved in, in activities that really violate the code of ethics of PRSA. Uh, 
endorsing and in some cases uh, being a part of the establishment of front groups. Uh, and my industry purposely dis- uh, hiding its funding of those groups and going to great lengths to make sure that no one was aware of its involvement, even to the extent of of discrediting a movie, Sicko, which premiered in 2007. Uh, So it it, it was something that was building over time. Then in 2007, I was back in Tennessee visiting relatives. I haven't lived there in quite a long time. But I picked up the hometown newspaper in Kingsport, Tennessee, and I read about a healthcare expedition that was being held across the state line in Wise County, Virginia, the southwestern part of the state, southern Appalachian area. The organizers of this expedition, as it was called, uh, started out providing health care to villages in the Amazon, flying doctors from the U.S. there. And I was curious why they were having an event in the United States, but it turned out this was the eighth year they had been doing that. Uh, soon after they started flying doctors to remote villages in the Amazon, they realized there was a great need in this country to provide free care for people who didn't have insurance or who couldn't afford to go to the doctor. So I, just out of curiosity, drove up there, and it was such a revelation. It was a true epiphany because in my job I had always been able to remove myself from the humanity of what I was doing uh, and what had happened to our health care system. Because I dealt in numbers much of the time. I didn't have the reason to look people in the face and see the consequences of a healthcare system that really has gone off the tracks. And I realized that the, insur- the insurance industry that I worked for and that I was serving as a spokesman for had in, in many ways contributed to the growing number of people without insurance and the people who are, many people more, who don't have, who are underinsured. And I realized at that point that I, it would just be, just be a matter of time before I would leave to do something else because I didn't think that I was working for the right team. This is actually a really moving story um, that, you, that you've told about the fact that these people were waiting in the rain, I remember, and that they were being treated in animal stalls. They were. And that here you are in this country, the richest country in the world, and people were so desperate for some form of health care that they were willing to wait in the rain and be treated in animal stalls. So there are these moments that, again, this is the drama of being confronted with something real that was challenging. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was, it was the drama. It was, the, it was the, the, the impact of seeing hundreds and hundreds of people who were lined up in the rain waiting to be treated by people who were volunteering their time over a three-day weekend. And they were, many of them, being treated in animal stalls and in, in a barn. And uh, many of them, I learned, were insured, but they were enrolled in plans that were inadequate and they had such limited benefits that it was doing them no good. And I've since learned uh, from talking to the organizers that many of the people who, who come there now are told by their insurance companies to call Remote Area Medical to find out when they're going to have an expedition in their area because I'm sorry, but your insurance policy will not cover what you need, but maybe you can go to one of remote area medicals, free clinics, Mm. and get the care that you need. So what did you do since, let's say, any of the people who are here in this room now, let's say they are confronted with a similar situation of suddenly wondering, what am I doing here? Did you talk to uh, your bosses? Did you talk to your colleagues? Did you analyze what was happening? What were the next steps? You know, I, I did, it took me a while to process it and to try to figure out what is it that I need to do here. Uh, I didn't know how I could walk away from a job because we, I was attached to it. I was attached to uh, the position that I had, which was one of uh, some, some influence. And uh, I enjoyed aspects of it. I would suggest that you just really do a, an, an ethics check um, and just Make sure that what you're doing uh, is something you're, you're proud of doing, that you would be, uh, wouldn't be ashamed to tell your friend or your, na- your neighbor or your mother that you're doing. And, and go through the ethical decision process and try to be the conscience of your, your company or your client, which is something that I think that we as PR practitioners can do, um, and that is to, to, to serve as the ethical conscience of an organization and make sure in an organization that is for-profit 
the expectation is that you will work to help your, your company achieve its financial goals. But you shouldn't be doing that at all costs. You should make sure that, that people you work with understand that there are really ethical limitations. And you know, what is interesting is that I studied economics in college, and even the founders of the capitalist system understood that. You know, Adam Smith, before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that there has to be a moral foundation to capitalism. Otherwise, it won't survive. And in a sense, you are confronted with that. And I was, then. I was confronted with that, and, and, and it became clear to me that because of what had happened in the insurance industry, which I was you know, willingly a part of for quite a long time, uh, it became clear to me what were the consequences of so many of the companies in the industry converting to for-profit status and having allegiance to Wall Street and the impact that that actually has on people who need care. And uh, I finally ultimately came to the conclusion that, that uh, uh, the companies that operate on a for-profit basis by law, by necessity, do have an, uh, an, an allegiance and, and a fiduciary responsibility to enhance shareholder value. But often, just to be able to preserve the status quo, uh, we were engaging in activities that really were unethical in retrospect. And then a year after you left, you decided to speak out. So tell us about that process, which was now last summer. Yeah, I, when I left, I thought, uh, well, I'll just take some time off. And it was announced as a retirement, but I was 56, and I didn't really have any intention of just going fishing. But I didn't know exactly what I would be doing. I thought I would do some consulting work. But as the debate on health care reform intensified, uh, I was growing increasingly uncomfortable watching the industry and watching what I call its shills uh, say things that that I knew were intended to, to influence the debate and to mislead people. And soon after the president had his summit on health care in March, uh, in which he invited leaders of the industry to come to the White House and talk about health care reform, uh, one of the leaders of the health insurance industry told the president, you can count on us this time. We're going to be at the table with solutions. Well, I knew that was disingenuous. It was part of what I call a duplicitous public relations campaign. Uh, which the industry has conducted many times over the years. Part of it is a charm offensive that I, I talk about of saying things that the public wants to hear or the, the industry thinks the public and the Congress and the President want to hear. But at the same time conducting uh, more devious and sinister PR campaigns using front groups and uh, disseminating false information in many different ways. And I could see that developing because that same day, I saw a member of Congress from my home state of Tennessee being interviewed on MSNBC saying that uh, he was asked a question about the uninsured. And his comment uh, was, you know, half the people who are uninsured are that way by choice. Yeah. That they have decided to go naked, as he put it. And I'm from Tennessee, that's a word that you use down there. It's, but I knew that was an industry term. Uh, in the health insurance industry, if someone doesn't have insurance, you often say they've decided to go naked, assuming that they can afford to get insurance. They can buy it, but they don't. Uh, and that was a term, a phrase that I had written, a response that I had written and used myself in years past. So I knew that the, the, the other side, the more devious PR campaign, was in full swing. And I just got angry. I said, okay, I'm not going to I'm not going to let this happen. If, I, if, if, if I'm on my deathbed, I at least want to look back and say that I, I did something to try to make a difference. Whether or not I'm doing what I'm doing makes a difference, I don't know. But I, I wanted to be sure that, that if I could, I would try to expose what really, in my view, is an unethical practice of public relations. And that brings us to what we're discussing backstage, which is really important, which is what is it that makes us able to make these hard decisions? What is it about ourselves? How can we be in the place where instead of numbing ourselves, as you called it, you know, we're talking backstage about how Wendell gave up drinking three years ago so that he would stop numbing himself. Now, we're not advocating that you all give up drinking. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> that is not essential. But the idea is 
beyond the actual act is the metaphor for sometimes we numb ourselves and so that we don't follow on what our better selves know is the right thing to do. You're, you're exactly right. I think that we, I'll, again, I'll speak for myself. I, over many years, was, was involved in a lot of public relations campaigns. And you want your team to win. You want to uh, help your organization achieve its goals. And sometimes you lose sight of, of, of exactly what it is you're doing. Uh, and it seems that you're trying to achieve a success at all, at whatever the cost might be and whatever the PR practice might be. Uh, and I, I really felt that uh, I could do this uh, and often I would have to come home and just numb myself because uh, that was a way I would avoid thinking about the consequences of what I was doing. So I think that, that we do get in a, a situation often of engaging in activities that we really are not proud of. But on the other hand, we, we think it's, it's okay because it's done. I was talking to a reporter from the Associated Press a few days ago, and I was describing some of the front groups that the industry has created over, over the course of time. And at one point he said, what's wrong with that? And I, I was taken back for a while. And then I, I said, you know, you, you, you're based in Washington, so I understand <laughs> why you said that, because it is often considered to be just the way things are done. Uh, purposely deceiving people is done. And you engage in that to the point that, well, that is okay. It's not necessarily illegal, uh, but you, you, as you do that for so long, you're almost like the frog that's in the pot of water mm -hmm. and the heat gets turned up. And after a while, you're cooked unless you finally confront yourself and your own values and realize that, that what you are doing at the end of the day, is, is unethical conduct. And you are purposely trying to mislead the public, public to achieve certain goals. One thing that I find really interesting is that following the ethical guidelines um, is actually now going to become increasingly important just to be effective. Because it's much easier to manipulate a handful of journalists or a handful of politicians than it is to manipulate thousands of people, thousands of users. And let me give you an example. After the Iranian uprising, uh, which really was a new way of covering a huge foreign policy event, and at the Huffington Post we had 24-7 uh, coverage of tweets and videos and the Facebook entries coming from Iran, you know, unprecedented, while CNN and other mainstream media could not get their reporters there because they'd been blocked. Well, there was an uprising a few months later in China, and the Chinese government had learned from Iran. So what they did is they blocked access to the Internet. You couldn't get Twitter, you couldn't get Facebook, you couldn't get any of the social media. And they invited a handful of journalists to visit the area where the revolt had been. The idea being that you can manipulate a handful of journalists, and they have been manipulated through the years. You know, in Stalinist Russia, they wrote about the Potemkin villages. Um, we had Bob Woodward, a great journalist, who wrote two books in the lead-up to the war with unlimited access to the White House, but he right. missed the story. Yeah. So as PR professionals, this is going to become harder and harder because you may fool a few people who can be seduced or entertained or given access, but it's going to be much harder to seduce thousands or millions of people with access to their own sources of information. It really is. One of the reasons I think I was successful and had a career as long as I did is because I knew how to develop relationships with key reporters and uh, to help and, and to persuade them to see things from my perspective, from my, my company's perspective. But you're, you're exactly right. Um, one of the things I've observed, though, during my career is that as newsrooms have declined, people in PR have more power than, than we used to have to a certain extent. Uh, I would be called by reporters often, and I would just, if I didn't want to talk to them, I would just issue a statement and be done with it and shut down conversation. Often reporters wouldn't call about things that I felt that I got away with. I couldn't believe that reporters really wouldn't call in large numbers when the company would announce quarterly earnings or when the annual report was held and the CEO was there and reporters could ask questions. They didn't show up. 
Uh, and I don't think this is necessarily laziness on the part of reporters. To a certain extent, it is. But because newsrooms, newsrooms have been shrinking, there are fewer reporters. They have less time to report. Uh, but to your point, um, there are more citizen journalists. There are more people who are able to provide news and information than ever before. And I think my own experience since I began to speak out is a testament to that. I uh, have been covered in the media fairly significantly, but I think most of the awareness of what I have been doing is through the social media and through the Internet more than, uh, more than anything else. It's been absolutely remarkable. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's, it's a double-edged sword because uh, with the, the decline of the mainstream media, we are all now self-selecting our sources of news more than we did before. And it's easier for special interest in a certain sense to manipulate some aspects or some portions of the public because you know that some people will go to Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck to get their news. And they'll go to Fox News to get their news, which they assume... Uh, to be unbiased, and others will go to MSNBC and other outlets that, that are on the other side of the political spectrum. So we can self-select, and special interests know that. And that is why I think we've, we've seen quite a bit of success uh, over the past summer with teabaggers, for example, showing up at some of the, the town halls. People who were showing up there often didn't realize that they were there and they were actually being manipulated to be there as a result of actions that the health insurance industry and other special interests were taking. But I feel, and maybe that's because I'm congenitally optimistic, that we have an opportunity now to make a distinction between facts and opinion. You see, it's one thing to have any opinions you want, but nobody has the right to their own set of facts. So as PR professionals and in the job that you did, I mean, very often the problem is not your opinions or what you say to surround the facts, but the facts that are being given. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that the younger generations growing up with the Internet, with social media, uh, I think are, are, are understanding the difference between fact and, and opinion. And they have pretty good BS filters. Uh, so I'm optimistic yeah. in, in that, that, to that extent as well, too. Yeah, I really find, for example, that it's not about the tool, because a lot of people think, oh, okay, we're going to have the CEO write a blog, right? Yeah. Or basically, we're going to write it for them and put their name on, which is fine if you can communicate their DNA. Yeah. Uh, it, has to, it has to be authentic, and that is really the key to using social media effectively. You're exactly right. You can detect someone who, is, who probably is not writing his or her own stuff. And, and you can detect if it is uh, uh, opinion or something that is just part of, of your company's propaganda. And, and I think that the people who are, who are familiar with it, who are at ease using the social media, uh, can, can pretty readily detect it. It's not something you can hide. So because, unfortunately, we're running out of time, we will keep talking until somebody tells us to stop. But I want to, I want to round it up by going to the beginning, you know, to the, those moments of the ethical decisions that uh, so many in this room will have to make, that you made, and to ask you, what has happened since? You know, have you had other PR professionals come to you or use you as a kind of their father confessor? and ask your advice about what they should do. How is that working out? I have. In fact, some people who are in the room today have, have uh, sent me emails, have called me, have thanked me for doing what I'm doing to, to call attention to the, the, the need to remind ourselves of uh, ethical decision-making and the fact that it is part of our code of ethics and uh, uh, that, that we need as a profession to, to a certain extent, please ourselves. Uh, the PR profession doesn't, is not held in high esteem by the public, and part of the reason for that is because of shady PR practices in the past and the fact that so many people see us as propagandists or, or, or spin doctors. Um, I we, think you're probably held in higher esteem than Congress. Yeah, well, that's just, I think you're <laughs> right. Um, I think they're held in higher esteem than Congress and a little bit higher esteem than, uh, than uh, the insurance executives, but I was a PR guy for the insurance industry, so I was pretty low on the, on the totem pole there. Now all that's left is you running for office. No. But uh, in <laughs> instead, though, you're going to be writing a book, and I'd love to 
talk a little bit about that. You know, the book that you're writing is going to delve a lot into this whole question of an ethical code of standards. It will. So tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, it will, it will use the, 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 the debate on health care reform as, as a kind of a core component, but, core component, but to show how it is that special interests are able to uh, manipulate public opinion and, and, and the use of often unethical PR practices uh, and, and to talk about the consequences on a democracy of, of the rise of corporate power and the influence of special interest at a, at a time when the mainstream media is declining and uh, with the rise of, of, of social media, what are the implications for our society and for democracy uh, as we've seen these great changes? But also talk about a little bit, it looks as if we may actually get some health care reform this time. And I think part of that is a consequence of the, 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 the rise of social media and the, the, the ability of people to stay connected with one another and, and for it to be, uh, for people who don't have millions of dollars to hire lobbyists, um, there, there, there is a, a means to, for people to, to be organized and, make, and have an influence in ways that, didn't, that wasn't possible in the past. So it'll be a book that looks at um, somewhat my own story and my own path uh, and a look at how we got to be where we are with whatever happens to health care reform, but also, again, the, uh, uh, the intersection of public relations and the media, which I've been a part of for many years, and the changes that's been, that has been taking place in both and what the consequences can be for the, the profession of public relations and for society as a whole. I'm sure everybody here will want a copy, and I know I will. And especially right now, when our country is still going through a major economic crisis, you know, even though Wall Street numbers are better and the Dow is doing better, millions of Americans are not doing better. So this is perhaps the time to rethink a lot of these issues. I think we need to. I think we need to rethink a lot of these issues. And and uh, and I'm, I am an optimist. I think that um, uh, we do have a chance to. To, to, to bring about some, some positive change in our democracy and our society uh, from an economic standpoint. I think there is a, uh, the ability that we have now to uh, talk to people in ways we haven't been able to talk to them before about the need for comprehensive health care reform and why that is not just something for people who think that it is a, a right, that people have a right to get health care, but why it makes sense economically, why, we are, why this is a core component of our economic recovery. And so let me ask you, as our final question, when you said that you made that decision, you know, after a lot of hard searching and agonizing, um, but that you, in a sense, haven't been happier for making it, this is a very powerful message because I feel that if we had more whistleblowers and more people resigning, um, we would actually be in a better way than we are. And maybe we need to bring in that fearlessness. We were talking about that book that I wrote on fearlessness and recognize that, in fact, it's not as, as much of a threat to our survival as we think to make those tough decisions. You're exactly right. The, as I mentioned, the toughest thing, the hardest thing I ever did was testify before Congress on June the 24th because I knew that once I did that, my life was going to change forever. I would not work in the insurance industry again. I knew that. Uh, uh, and I probably wouldn't be getting many calls from uh, recruiters with any other kind of a corporate job either, for that matter. But you th I thought about all the negatives that could happen to me. I knew this is a, an enormously rich and influential industry. What are they going to do to me? How is my life going to be uh, affected and my family's uh, lives affected? So you think of the bad things that can happen rather than the, the positive aspects of it. And and I guess it's human nature. But I decided if I'm going to do this, I've got to finally grow a pair. I've got to be fearless. Um, and, uh, and your book was one of the things that, one of the, one of the books I read to get, me, to get me to where I needed to have the courage to do it. Another was Profiles of Courage with John Kennedy. Another was uh, um, Sir Richard uh, Branson's Screw It, Just Do It. Uh, which was what I ultimately decided to do. I guess the ultimate point is we are, I think it's, it's human nature to think of the worst that can happen to us. 
But I sleep a lot better at night, and I've had one hell of a, a ride since this started. It's been just wonderful. I've been able to, to talk freely and to say things without the fear of the, the CEO um, um, not being happy with what I said, and to be able to, to talk truth uh, and, and, and not worry about having to express it in a certain way uh, is... It's, it's like being unshackled to a certain extent. My message to PR people is that don't let yourselves get into the position of feeling that you are constantly worried uh, uh, that you're going to make a mistake and, and say something to the media that, that's, that's inappropriate. When you, when you are in constant fear, yes. do a check. Something's wrong. I just, I just want to say one thing before I hand it over to you. One is to give you my email address, as I promised which is Ariana, one R, two N's, at HuffingtonPost.com to continue the conversation. And the other is to say how incredibly grateful we are to you for what you've done and for what you represent. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. And for both of you, on behalf of PRSA, Ariana, thank you for being such a trailblazer. And Wendell, thank you for being so brave. Honestly, you're a role model for all of us, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to exclusive coverage of the annual Public Relations Society of America's International Conference, only on webmasterradio.fm. This podcast is presented by the Public Relations Society of America at webmasterradio.fm. It may not be reproduced, reused, or rebroadcasted without prior consent of the Public Relations Society of America.